Well, good morning, church. All right, if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark uh, chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, as we are continuing uh, preaching through uh, the gospel according to Mark. Well, September 4th, 2012, March 28th, 2014, July 24th, 2016, and May 11th, 2018, those were four of some of the best days of my life. And yes, I did have to check the notes on a couple of the last ones just to refresh my memory. But those were the four days that my four boys were born into the world. Those were uh, four days that, that God brought new life into the world. And I got, we got to meet our boys on those days. We got to actually see them. I mean, we had, we had seen some pictures on the ultrasound before, but they kind of looked like little alien faces, right? So it was actually on those days that we got to see them, and we got to hold them, and we got to meet them. And uh, four of the best days of my life because God brought new life into the world on those days. They were great days. But listen, it wasn't all fun and games on those days either. Those were also four very painful days as well. Now, I realize I'm not going to get a shred of sympathy from any of the ladies in the room uh, today because uh, I realize that Britt handled most of the pain on those days. Uh, but, uh, you know, watching Britt labor for 19 hours with Jackson and, and refusing all medications and the doctors wouldn't give me the medication she was refusing even though I wanted them, uh, right? But, but so, so listen, I know most of the pain, you know, Britt uh, took, but it was also painful for me as well because I had to watch just the woman that I love be in pain and agony and feel like there's nothing that I could do uh, to make it go away. And so she was in pain. I was somewhat in pain. I realized not to the same degree, okay? We were both in pain, and especially with Jackson. I mean, 19 hours, you know, 12 hours in, you're just wondering, okay, how long is this going to go on for? You know, when will this be over? But it would always be comforting to me when the, our, our midwife would walk in. Because you see, when Britt is in pain and when I am in pain, there are a few things that I want to know from the midwife that really brought me comfort. And, and number one was, uh, first, is there a plan here? right? Like the midwife comes in like, is there a plan for this pain? Like, is there a plan for when she's going to start pushing or, or when she does need some medications? Is there a plan uh, for how often we're going to monitor Jackson's heart rate, right? Like, is there a plan? Do you know what is about to happen? That was the first thing I would want to know when the midwife would come in and visit us. The second thing I would want to know from the midwife is, are you going to be present with us through this pain? Like you keep coming in and checking on us, but then you leave. Where are you going when you leave? Like, are you just going down the hall? Are you going across the street? Are you going across town? Like, are you going to be here when we really need you to be here? Like when it's go time, are you going to be present with us? And the third thing that I wanted to know from the midwife was, uh, are you powerful enough to do something about the pain? 
right? Like if she does want medications, which she didn't, even though I wanted them, right? Like, like if she did, are you powerful enough to give her medications? If she needs surgery, are you powerful enough to get her there? Like I, it's, it's one thing to be present, but are you powerful enough to actually do something about it? I was present, but I couldn't, I didn't have the power to do any of these things. And so these were comforting things for me to know that when Britt was in pain and when I am in pain, to know that the midwife had a plan for the pain. It was comforting to know that the midwife was going to be present with us through the pain. And it was comforting to know that the midwife had some power over the pain. Those were comforting things to know for sure. And in our passage today, Jesus is going to talk to his disciples about the future. The future, which can be some, anytime you're talking about the future, right, there can be some anxiety and stress that happens because we don't know the future. And Jesus is going to try to get his disciples ready for the future. He's going to tell them what's coming their way. And he, and he says in Mark 13, verse 8, he says that these things he's about to tell them will be the beginning of birth pains. He doesn't just say pain, which the disciples would have heard, hey, there's some pain coming your way. The disciples would have been like, hey, Jesus, we're men. We can handle some pain. We can handle, you know, broken bones, the man flu. We got it. Like, we can handle that. He doesn't just say there's pain coming your way. Jesus says these are going to be the beginning of birth pains which all the disciples, any of them who had a wife and kids would, would know, oh, okay, like he's, he's talking for real here. This is like some next level pain we're talking about that is coming our way. But, but Jesus, he's so good to his disciples because he doesn't just say, hey, pain is coming your way. Good luck with that. No, he gives them these comforting words. And although this passage of scripture, Mark 13, is a little confusing, uh, there are a lot of comforting words in this chapter because we're going to see throughout today and throughout next week, we're going to see that Jesus knows the future of his people. We're, we're going to try to figure it out, but we can take comfort in the fact that Jesus knows the future of his people, even when we struggle to really know what that's going to be. We can take comfort in the fact that Jesus has a plan for their pain. That Jesus is going to be present with them through the pain. And Jesus has got the power over their pain. And then we will see Jesus. He will provide and preserve his people. He will provide for and preserve his people till they are brought into a new life where they will remember their pain no more. Just like ladies, you know, you go through all that pain of having a child, new life is here, and something crazy happens to you where you kind of forget the pain you just went through, and you're crazy enough to want to do it all over again with another child, right? There will be a time where we will not at all even remember the temporary, momentary afflictions of this world, the new life that is coming will be so sweet and so good, we won't even remember. Our pain will be an afterthought. And it's going to take me two weeks to preach uh, Mark 13, uh, so we won't cover everything this morning, but we'll, we'll try to get about halfway through. Let me just say another prayer for us, and we'll jump into Mark chapter 13. Father God, we do... 
uh, acknowledge that this is a text of Scripture that is hard to understand. And Lord, I ask um, that as we come before it, that you would give us hearts of uh, humility, um, that you would, um, Lord, still help us uh, take comfort in the fact that even though we don't understand fully the future, uh, we know you know the future of your people. And so help us trust you. Help us learn from you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, look with me at Mark 13, verse 1. Mark 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, let me for a second recap uh, where we're at in, in Mark. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip back to Mark 11. Uh, because Mark 11, and we'll just kind of follow here. I'll go real quickly through it. In Mark 11, we see Jesus's triumphal entry, right? He enters into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling uh, prophecies, saying the Messiah would come in on a donkey. And he, he ends his, uh, this procession, this triumphal entry, he ends at the temple. And he looks around at the temple, he sees what's going on, and then he goes home and he gets some sleep. He comes back the next day and he cleanses the temple. Right? He, he, the, the, the court of the Gentiles was supposed to be a place uh, where the nations could come and pray and seek the Lord, but it had been turned into a place of commerce. And so Jesus did not cleanse the temple of the Gentiles. He cleansed the temple for the Gentiles. He cleared out space so that the nations could once again come in and pray and seek the Lord. The religious leaders don't like this, though. They challenge his authority. And then Jesus goes into the parable of the tenants. And he says that the religious leaders of the temple, the religious leaders of the Jews of that time, were like the evil, wicked tenants of God's vineyard. They killed all the prophets and messengers that God had sent to them. And, and, and Jesus says in this parable that they will end up killing God's son, right? They will kill him as well. And as a result, God is going to come and not destroy the vineyard, but he's going to come and destroy the, the, uh, the religious leaders of God's people. And he's going to uh, wipe out the whole temple system, sacrificial system, and replace it with new leadership, right? It's going to uh, transition now to the apostles and to churches and to elders and deacons, right? And so he's saying uh, uh, the religious leaders are like the evil, wicked tenants. God is going to come change uh, leadership for his people. Now, the religious leaders, you can imagine, they don't like this, so they start sending all these people to oppose him. And now in chapter 13, as they are leaving the temple, one of his disciples, we don't know which one, but one of his disciples is still pretty enthralled by the temple. Which the temple, it was an impressive structure. It was Herod the Great's temple, and it was his obsession to just make it a magnificent uh, structure. The temple grounds were over 35 acres. That could encompass 12 football fields, if you can get your mind around this, how big the temple structure was. The stones that were used for the temple were enormous. Some of them were, were 60 feet long. Some of them weighed more than a million pounds. This was an impressive structure. This was a world-renowned temple. People all over the known world knew about the temple in Jerusalem, and there was no other temple quite like it. 
And Jesus' disciples were impressed by it as well. Even as they're leaving, even after Jesus has had all these run-ins with the leadership of the temple, and, and, and even though uh, the disciples have been hearing Jesus say, hey, there's a new thing coming, there's a new system kind of coming, this, this temple is going to be destroyed, still one of his disciples are pretty impressed by it. So don't miss how big this is, that Jesus says the temple is going to be destroyed. That's what he just tells them here in these first verses, right? He says, this temple is going to be destroyed. Now, now for us, that might not seem like a big deal, but for his disciples to hear this, this that would have rocked their world to hear that the temple is going to be destroyed. I mean, the temple was where the Sanhedrin was, the, 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 the highest uh, kind of religious authority for the Jewish people. The temple was where they made sacrifices to God. The temple was where you went to be close to the presence of God. Like, what do you mean the temple is going to be destroyed? It would have rocked their world. It would have been for them like hearing like the world as they knew it was over. The temple would be destroyed. This would be like a Christian hearing that they can no longer get their chicken at Chick-fil-A or they can no longer ask uh, Dave Ramsey their financial questions, right? It's like, wait, what do you mean? Where do we go? What do we do, right? If the temple's destroyed, how do we get close to God? How do we pray? How do we make sacrifices? It would have rocked their world. This was earth-shattering news. And so they ask Jesus questions in verse Four, and they say, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? They ask, when will the temple be destroyed, and what will be the sign that it's about to be destroyed? So if you're okay with writing in your Bibles, uh, which I am, go ahead and circle the number four for verse four, okay? Because we're going to come back to it over the next couple of weeks and remind ourselves, once this text starts getting really confusing, we, we need to remind ourselves the questions that Jesus is answering, all right? These are the questions that kind of spark the rest of the conversation, the rest of our text. And listen, guys, Mark 13 is the most uh, difficult chapter to understand and interpret in the, in the Gospel of Mark. So in the last two years we've been going through Mark, this is the most uh, difficult to try to understand what it all means. And so I've been looking for help from commentators and other pastors like R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and Daniel Aiken and David Platt and R.T. France and Sam Storms and Grudem and Burkhoff. And guess what? They all think differently about this text. Amen. Which is really, which is like, okay, okay, so what, what do we do with this, all right? This is a difficult passage of Scripture. It can be a little unclear. People who love Jesus and are very smart and love God's Word kind of have some differing opinions on what this all means. And so listen, church, anytime we come to a passage of Scripture that is a bit unclear— this is what we need to guard against. We need to guard against any pride or division in the church. Because what will happen is we will naturally want to find the pastor or author that agrees with us, cling tightly to that, and then put down our brothers and sisters who would see or read this a little differently. 
But that doesn't need to be the case, okay? I actually really like unclear passages of Scripture uh, because I don't think they should promote pride in us. I think they should actually cultivate hearts of humility as we lean into some of the mysteries of God. Like there are passages like this that, again, really intelligent people who love Jesus, who have studied all their life, like they see this a little differently. And so we need to come to this and be, be humbled by it. We need to be humbled, like, like God, yes, has made clear to us everything we need to know for life and salvation. He has. He has made that clear. But listen, he has not made clear everything there is to know about him, and he has not made clear everything there is to know about the, his universe and the future of it. And so we should read a text like this, and, and we should be humbled by it. We shouldn't stay away from it or avoid it because it's confusing, but we should just be humble about it. And then we shouldn't promote division in our church, okay, but it should actually promote community as we hear from other people who are maybe seeing this a little differently and would interpret this differently and learn from one another. And so even in our church, coming to a text like this, there will be differing opinions as to what this all means. Uh, and, and listen, that is okay. That is okay. And so we're going to take two weeks to go through it. I'll share with you the different ways to interpret this text, as well as I'll share with you how I view it. Uh, but, but listen, in the end, it is okay if you disagree with me on some of these things, okay? I'm going to try to take a complex text and make it as simple as, as possible in two weeks, okay? So let's start. Essentially, there are three schools of thought with chapter 13, uh, and they're divided into these three groups. The first group reads Mark chapter 13 and believes that everything Jesus is talking about took place in the first century, right? During the lives of the disciples, uh, it has all already happened, okay? That's one school of thought, that all this happened in the first century, all right? The second school of thought is you read Mark 13, and, and, and they believe that this is all talking about the end times, like things that haven't even happened yet. They're all, it's all coming in the future. Jesus is talking about things that didn't happen in the disciples' lifetime and hasn't even happened in our lifetime. It's off in the future. That's the second group. The third group reads Mark chapter 13 and believes that some of what Jesus said uh, was fulfilled during the first century, uh, but that he was also prophesying about things to come, uh, his second coming and the end times, things that have not yet happened. But even in that third group, uh, there's some differing opinions as to which verses are talking about the first century and which verses are talking about the future, the end times. Because you see, another big verse in Mark 13 for us to consider is Mark 13, verse 30. And if you're okay to write in your Bibles, go ahead and circle verse 30 as well. Mark 13, verse 30 says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, depending on what camp you are in will depend upon whether you can take that verse literally or whether you have to interpret that a little differently into what Jesus is talking about. And next week, we'll specifically talk about that verse because there are other ways to interpret that. Um, so we'll get to that next week. But, but you guys have to know that many skeptics will take a verse like this in Mark 13, verse 30, and say, hey, all these things didn't happen uh, when Jesus said they would all happen in that generation, so Jesus was wrong. 
And if Jesus was wrong, then he's discredited. Then he's not God, right? And so many skeptics, skeptics have looked at verse 30 and said, hey, uh, all these things didn't take place in that generation. So therefore, Jesus is uh, discredited. And so we need to, need to deal with verse 30 in, in some way uh, or another. But just so you guys know where I'm at, I'm going to lay all my cards on the table, all right, this morning for the next couple of weeks. Um, I read verse 30 literally and therefore believe that everything prior to verse 30 has actually already taken place and took place in the first century. Now, again, you can disagree with me, and that's okay, and I'm going to talk through all the ways you can view this. Uh, uh, and I realize that me saying that probably even creates more questions than it does help at this point, uh, but you can come back next week to hear how I'm going to talk about verses 24 through 27. I don't think are primarily about the second coming of Christ, okay? Um, so hang with me till, till next week, all right? Okay. But even, even though there are some complex subject matters on this, in this text, this is ultimately a beautiful passage about Jesus knowing the future of his people. Jesus having a plan for their pain. Jesus being present with them through their pain. And Jesus having power over their pain. And then finally, Jesus providing for and preserving his people till they are brought into a new life where it will be so sweet they will remember their pain no more. That's the comfort. That's the thing we can cling to in the, in, the mix, in the mix of all the confusing parts of this text. We can cling to that comforting thought that we might not have our future all figured out, but Jesus does. So look with me now at verse 5. Look at me at uh, verse 5. And keep in mind verse 4, right? Uh, remember the questions being asked. When will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus is now sitting with uh, four of his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and they're actually overlooking the temple, right? The Mount of Olives, they're, they're sitting there. They've asked him a question about the temple, and they're now sitting looking out at the temple. And this is what he says in verse verse 5, Mark 13, verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. But these, these, are, our, these are but the beginning of, of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
All right, now that text, it very much, it could be talking about future end time stuff, but I'm going to argue that it's primarily talking about what is about to happen to his disciples. Jesus is getting his disciples ready. He says pain is coming, and, and not just any pain, but birth pains, right? But, but what do we know about birth pains? Birth pains mean that something new is coming, right? Something new is coming. There's a plan for this pain. And I've heard it said that Christians, we are not saved from trials, but we are saved through trials. And here, Jesus is telling his disciples that pain is coming. And he he warns them. He says in verse 5, see to it that no one leads you astray. Think about it. When, when, when is one of the most likely times you will be led astray or someone could be led astray? Like when, when they are in pain. When you are in pain, you just want the pain to stop, right? And therefore, you can easily be led astray. You can be like the, the person on the way to the hospital to see me, to have a trained professional evaluate their pain, but they're in so much pain, they see family videos selling CBD oil, so they turn off and miss their appointment to go to family video. Like, that's a real-life illustration for you, right? Like, like it's because when we're in pain, right, we can be easily led astray. We just want the pain to stop, Like, why is family video selling CBD oil? I don't know. What's going on there? We need to talk about that. That'll be Citigroup discussion this week. But we are most vulnerable to being led astray when we are in pain. And so when people, when they're in mental pain or emotional pain, right, this is when they will grab on to any blogger or influencer or, or, or author, anyone who can make claims that they can stop their pain, uh, people are ready to grab on to that, right? And so this was happening in the first century in the lives of the disciples when G- after Jesus had ascended into heaven. Historians tell us that in the first century, there were many that came and claimed to be the Messiah, there were many that came and, and claimed to, to, to be the one the people had been waiting for. And so many people were led astray by these false messiahs. And Paul gives a similar warning to the Colossians. In Colossians 2, verse 8, which we'll have up on the screen, he writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Jesus says, pain is coming. Don't be led astray by any of these other false Christs, anything that's not according to Christ. He then warns them that wars and rumors of war will happen. And this this was happening in the first century. For example, in the year A.D. 40, just a few years after Jesus spoke these uh, words, the emperor of Rome had, had tried to set up a statue of himself in the temple. And so there were these violent protests among the Jewish people and, and rumors that war would eventually break out. And then war did eventually break out. Later on in, in A.D. 66 through A.D. 70, the Jews led a revolt against the Romans, which eventually then led to the destruction of Jerusalem and eventually led to the destruction of the temple. In A.D. 70, approximately 40 years after Jesus said the temple would be destroyed, it was, in fact, destroyed. The unthinkable happened. Was Jesus just lucky? Was that a lucky guess, or is he God, right? He said 40 years before the temple would be destroyed, and in A.D. 70, the Romans destroyed the temple. 
Jesus also goes on to warn his disciples that there will be earthquakes and famines, which this was happening in the first century as well. Uh, In AD 61, there was a huge earthquake in the region of modern-day Turkey. Another earthquake leveled the city of Pompeii in A.D. 63. And then between the years A.D. 41 and 54, there were several famines throughout the known world. Now, the rest of the world would have been taken off guard by all these things, but not the disciples of Jesus, right? Jesus had told them that pain was coming. These things were going to be leading up to the destruction of the temple. And Jesus also tells them that they're going to be persecuted right? He says, you're going to be beaten in synagogues. You're going to have to stand before kings and governors to proclaim the gospel, but that they shouldn't be nervous about what they're going to say, but that what they're going to say is going to be given to them by the Holy Spirit. And then verse 10 then says that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Well, you might be asking, okay, Grant, You said you think everything before verse 30 took place in the first century, but there are still people groups today that have not heard the gospel. So so let me clarify for a second this verse, because, listen, I very much agree that, that the great commission that Jesus gave for us to go and make disciples of all nations, I do not believe that that mission is yet complete. I believe that still is our mission to go to the nations and make disciples. However, I, I think that the best way to understand verse 10 is you have to put yourself in the position of a Jewish disciple in the first century who is asking about the temple and sitting on the mountain olives looking at the temple. Okay? And so what Jesus, I believe, is emphasizing is that the gospel is not just for the Jewish nation, but it is for the nations, plural, right? Paul, Paul, who also lived in the first century, he he spoke in this language as well of the gospel going to the nations and going to the known world, even though we know in Paul's life the gospel hadn't gotten to every square inch of planet Earth yet. So, for example, in Colossians 1, 5 and 6, Paul writes, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. He uses that, that phrasing in the whole world. And then Paul also uses that language in Romans 1. Verse 8, he writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, we know the gospel, right, had not gone to every inch of the entire world, but we do know, at least in the first century, it had gone out from the Jewish nation to the nations. It had gone and spread throughout the known world. And therefore, while I don't think the Great Commission has yet been completed, I think it is possible that verse 10 could have been completed in the first century. Remember the questions that Jesus is answering. He's he's answering, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And what will be the sign that it's about to happen? 
And he says, birth pains will start, people will be led astray, rumors of war and war will happen, earthquakes, famine, persecution will come, you will be beaten and have to bear witness before kings and governors because of him, the gospel will be proclaimed to the Gentiles, to the nations, and this will all be leading up to the destruction of the temple, and it will be painful, it will be painful, but, but Jesus knows the future of his people. And Jesus has a plan for their pain. And Jesus will be present with them through their pain, right? He's even saying, hey, I'm going to give you the words to speak when you're being beaten and having to proclaim the gospel. And Jesus will have the power over their pain. He decides when it's done. And Jesus will provide for and preserve his people till they are brought into a new life that will be so sweet their pain will be an afterthought. Look back at Mark Look back at Mark. This is where it really starts to get weird, so buckle up. Uh, Mark 13, verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Yeah, we're trying, okay. Uh, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to it, take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. Now, most of us read the abomination of desolation and we think, sweet mercy, what's going on here? And then I love what John Mark likely adds here for us, a little commentary, right, in parentheses. Let the reader understand. Okay, we'll try our best. But you see, Jesus, when he brings up the abomination of desolation, he's referring to prophecy that was given to the prophet Daniel. And that phrase, abomination of desolation, really what it literally means is the abomination that causes desolation, okay? And what that word abomination is, abomination is an idolatrous offense to the true worship of God. And so when we say abomination of desolation, I mean, it does kind of roll off the tongue a little bit, but we don't, what does that mean? We're talking about an idolatrous offense to the true worship of God that causes a desolation, right, uh, specifically of the temple. Now, there are different views as to when this prophecy of Daniel and Jesus are fulfilled, or even if it has been fulfilled uh, yet. So some believe that Daniel's prophecy was first fulfilled about 170 years before Jesus was even born, okay? When there, there was a Syrian king uh, named uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, after slaughtering 40,000 Jews and plundering the temple, uh, this king sacrificed a pig on the altar of burnt offering and then took this unclean animal, right, and spread it all along the holy grounds. And then he put up an image of Zeus, 
Jesus above the altar. I mean, talk about an idolatrous offense to the true worship of God to Jewish people when they think about the temple, right? And so this, this Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes, certainly could have partially fulfilled this abomination that causes desolation. However, Jesus then brings it up again. So it seems like it maybe wasn't completely fulfilled, or at least there was going to be a second time this would happen, because Jesus brings it up when he's answering his disciples' questions as to when the temple is going to be destroyed and what will be the sign that this will take place. And so many believe here that Jesus is referencing what's about to happen in the year A.D. 70, okay? About 40 years after Jesus spoke, right, the Roman general Titus, is going to come in and squash out the Jewish uprising and destroy the city of Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And, and the Jewish historian Josephus, who was there during that time, believed that the conquest of Titus was the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy as well as the prophecy of Jesus. Because what Titus did was, uh, as Jerusalem was burning, right, he brought images of Caesar into the temple, and, and, and the Caesars considered themselves to be gods. So here was essentially humanity declaring themselves to be God in the temple of God. And so this certainly would have been an abomination that causes desolation of the temple. Now, some people also think that Daniel's prophecy and Jesus' uh, prophecy, yes, was fulfilled with Antiochus Epiphanes and then with Titus, but some also think it's going to refer to a, a third abomination of, of uh, desolation with a future Antichrist who's going to go into uh, uh, the temple, a rebuilt temple in the end times. So that, that is possible. However, I don't think it's necessary for this scripture to be true. But it is possible. But primarily, I believe what Jesus is talking about is he's getting his disciples ready for the destruction of the temple and what the Roman general Titus is going to do. Because listen, in the years A.D. 66 through 70, the time when the Romans are going to lay siege to Jerusalem, it, it, it was a horrific time to be alive, and it could be accurately described as a great tribulation in that time. The Romans, what they did to the city of Jerusalem, they, they cut off the food supply. They didn't allow anyone in or out of the city. And then they ended up burning up all the, the storehouses that had the extra food in it. The Romans then uh, intentionally polluted the water supply so the people didn't have water. And so people in Jerusalem, they were literally, they were starving to death. There's stories of, of people uh, 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 resorting to cannibalism and, and even eating own, their own family members and children. It was a horrific time. The Romans would come in and start crucifying people. Uh, the historians say that they were crucifying 500 Jewish people a day. I mean, can you imagine 500 crucifixions a day for like four years? And Josephus wrote that the noise from the fighting was continual, but that the noise of people lamenting and mourning actually exceeded the noise from the fighting. People were just crying and groaning and moaning like continually. It was a horrific time. If you were there in that time, there would have been no question that that was a great tribulation. The death count was in the millions. And Jesus is trying to tell his disciples, like, it's going to be painful. The destruction of the temple will be painful. Painful. 
But we can take comfort that Jesus knows the future of his people. And Jesus has a plan for their pain. And Jesus will be present with them through the pain. And Jesus has power over their pain. And Jesus will ultimately provide for and preserve his people till they are brought into a new life that will be so sweet they will remember their pain no more. And so what does Jesus tell his disciples to do? Does he tell them to fight the Romans? I mean, every, everyone thought the Messiah was going to be a political, military hero and leader and rescuer. And Josephus re- recounts during that war, some of even uh, the Jewish military strategy was like expecting the Messiah to show up and rescue at some point. Like they were even strategizing like, okay, we'll do this and this, and then hopefully the Messiah shows up, right? They were still ready and looking for that. So what does Jesus say? Does he say, fight the Romans? That's when I'm going to show up and, and, and cut them all down? No, look, look how gracious Jesus is. And we're, we're going to wrap, wrap up this morning with this. Look how gracious Jesus is. He preserves his people by giving them a plan of escape. Look at Mark 13, verse 14. Here's his plan of escape. But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Or, or Luke's account, the parallel account, we'll have that up on the screen, Luke twenty one twenty. He said, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Okay, think with me. You see, conventional wisdom back in that time said, when an army is coming, run into the fortified city. That, that, that was the understanding. All the people in the countryside, when the armies are coming, everyone get in the walls, right? Go to the inside the city for protection. Run inside. And so that is what would have been happening. The Romans are coming. Everyone is running into the city. But Jesus, in order to preserve his people, had a plan for them to escape that coming judgment that was coming on Jerusalem. And he said, no, when you see the armies coming, don't run into the city. He said, flee to the mountains. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. History tells us late in the year A.D. 66, the Christian community in Jerusalem under the leadership of Simeon, a cousin of Jesus, withdrew to the village of Pella in Perea, a mountainous region east of the Sea of Galilee. Historians say it was sort of strange, like the Roman commander Cestius inexplicably and without warning ordered his troops to withdraw temporarily. And what this temporary withdrawal allowed, it allowed the Christians in Jerusalem who remembered Jesus's words, who remembered Jesus's plan of escape and rescue for them, they, they, uh, they escaped the city to the mountains before the tribulation really got bad. And according to the historian of the ancient church, Eusebius, it was then when the Roman armies temporarily withdrew that the believers remembered the warning of Jesus and fled the city. And these are some of uh, his words, the, the historian. He says, Moreover, the people of the church at Jerusalem, in accordance with a certain oracle that was vouchsafed by way of revelation to the approved men there, had been commanded to depart the city before the war and to inhabit a certain city of Perea. They called it Pella. 
right? Jesus' disciples, those who followed Jesus, they remembered, hey, no, Jesus said this was going to happen, and, and we have to listen. This is how we are going to escape. It goes against conventional wisdom. It goes against how we would think to protect and save ourselves, but this is what we have to do. He said, flee to the mountains. And he says, and, and he goes on to say, and when those who believed in Christ had removed from Jerusalem, as if holy men had utterly deserted both the royal metropolis of the Jews itself and the whole land of Judea, the justice of God then visited upon them all their acts of violence to Christ and his apostles by destroying that generation of wicked persons, root and branch from among men. Right? Judgment was coming on Jerusalem. Judgment was coming on the temple, on the religious leaders. You might say, why? That seems kind of harsh. It's actually not that harsh. God came to the city and they crucified him. Right? The religious leaders, God had sent prophets and messengers to them to plead with them, but, but they rejected them. They had been taking advantage of widows. They had been pretending to be on God's team, and they were not. They had abused their power. They had killed the messengers of God, and they ultimately killed God's son. So judgment was coming, but Jesus gave people a way of escape. Jesus warned his disciples pain was coming. Things were going to get painful. But when the pain would come, his disciples should not be discouraged. They should not be led astray. They should not renounce their faith. No, this pain was according to the plan of God. And they could take comfort in the fact that there was a plan. You see, yes, the temple was destroyed by the Romans. And I'm, I'm closing with this, I promise. Yes, the temple was destroyed by the Romans. But that was according to the plan of God. Because through Christ, we no longer have to go to a temple to be near the presence of God. But now, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God's Spirit can now live inside of us. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple? Right? Like something new is coming. The destruction of the temple is going to be a hard, painful time, but something new and something even better, something life-giving is coming. Do you not know that now you are God's temple? God's Spirit can dwell with His people. The people of God are no longer separated by God. It's no longer separated from the presence of God. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the curtain that separated us has been torn in two, and God and man can once again dwell together. Yes, in this world we will experience pain. Yes, the destruction of the temple and the sacrificial system and the religious establishment, it was going to be painful, but something new was coming. And so too for us, church, there will be pain and trials in this life, but take heart, something new is coming. Jesus knows the future of his people. Jesus has a plan for our pain. Jesus will be present with us through our pain. Jesus has power over our pain. And Jesus will provide for and preserve us till we are brought into a new life that will be so sweet we will remember our pain no more. We've had enough fun this morning. We'll save the rest of chapter 13 for next week. Let's pray. <laughs> <laughs>